welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Rich. I'm Kat. Isn't Lablo a bit heady for that? So, you know your perfumes. What else do you know? A little about women. Think about me as the woman you've just bought. Who needs to buy? In this episode, we're striding through the waves with 1969's James Bond movie On Her Majesty's Secret Service, based on the 1963 novel by Ian Fleming and directed by Peter Hunt. With the script written by Richard Maybaum, this film was George Lazenby's only appearance as Bond, following on from Sean Connery stepping away from the role. Tonight, we'll be exploring the relationship between James and Tracy. Does their connection have a lot of guts, or is it just a temporary measure to keep the caviar cool? If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice. Don't let us pine away without even a postcard. <laughs> and don't forget the brandy. <laughs> Quite. Oh, it's nice to be back with Bond again, isn't it? It's... I'm very excited, but you must be even more so. Yeah. I mean, this is the first Bond film we've done since, uh, in fact, our first ever episode we did about Casino Royale. And it's nice to come back to one where... Uh, the relationship in the film is quite central and to be honest more than most Bond films still registers sort of 50 plus years later Um, and I I suppose I best give a spoiler warning because if you haven't seen the film this podcast is going to be full of them so yeah yeah, let's be frank the the ending you you know what's going um but yeah, I mean, this is the first time you've seen it. What did you think of the relationship between the two? Tracy's a really interesting character. She's got uh, a lot of force to her. She is uh, conflicted. She's got a lot of strength. She's got a lot of physical strength as well as being articulate. Uh, she she has a kind of sadness to her, I think, that, you know, I mean, not not just not just based on what we see play out at the beginning of the movie. But also in her delivery, I think there's quite a lot of poignancy. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think when you look at the the female Bond characters of, of the 60s, it's strange when people look back with nostalgia and, and think of Bond girls as these kind of bikini-clad eye candy, really. And yet a lot of the ones from the 60s, I mean, you've got... Diana Rigg here, got on a Blackman, and some of the others in, in like Thunderball, for example, where you know they, they really are a match for Bond. I mean, in some ways here, George Lazenby gets a lot of flack for his acting. I mean, it's, essentially, he's a he's a male model who who charmed his way into this role. But yeah, interesting. But yeah, and, and again, Diana Rigg and, and Telly Savalas and, and some of the other cast do do a lot of lifting, but. The, the pairing between the two, and we were already accustomed to James Bond in cinema. I think this was the sixth Bond film they'd been. And, you know, we see him meeting a woman who's trying to kill herself in the pre-title sequence, which is a very cold opening. Um, yeah. A lot of the dramatic scenes of them in the casino when uh, she doesn't have enough money to, to pay her bet the way that she acts, you know, she's not all, oh, James, with him. She's very her own person. And and, and the book expands on that quite a lot, a lot of the, the tragedy that she's had in in her life beforehand, which I guess they, they don't really have a lot of chance to expand on in the film. But, but even so, the fact that they meet and then they're brought back together because of her father, who just happens to be one of the, the heads of organised crime in Southern Europe... It's um, a match made in heaven, somewhat. Yes, it kind of reminded me a little bit of when we did an episode on It Happened One Night, and that starts um, with Claudette Cobert's character jumping off a ship to escape her father, doesn't it? I guess if you're reading the book, this came out in 1963, I think it was. Yeah, 63. Yeah. So a lot of people would have seen Dr. No already, anyway. Um, And you're imagining Sean Connery in the role, and this is the first movie that Connery wasn't in. And that's a big culture shock as well, because you do wonder, I mean, it would have been a, a, a different film had, had Connery been in it, you know, based, based on, on what had gone before. But, um, but I yeah. think the way that Lazenby plays it, there is a kind of softness to his performance that 
Dynarig in some ways acts him off the screen, but I think... <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you said that. Because <laughs> I kind of... I did kind of think that. But I mean, yes. but that's... But I have to say, that's not... That's not a criticism of him because I think it'd be very hard for anyone actually to be up against Diana Rigg and be able to hold their own because I think she's absolutely tremendous. I mean, she's such an asset to this movie. You know, she's she's incredible. I mean, she's a proper RSC. She's kind of the opposite to him in the sense that she's an RSC trained actor. You know, she really, she re- by the time she got to this point in her career, she'd done so much theatre. You know, you can really sort of see when she, there's her beautiful delivery of that poem that, you know, I think it's based on one by um, James Ilroy Flecker. And for thee, you know, for thee, the sun's sunlight creeps across the lawn, for thee, the ships are drawn down to the waves. It's so beautiful the way she delivers it. And um, I kind of think it's, it's a bit of a shame that she doesn't have a little bit more screen time, I think, just because she's so tremendous. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, um, and I think here... You know, while while the reason they're brought together is kind of ties in more so with the books, but the way that that J- James Bond is trying to hunt Ernst Avro Blofeld, uh, and I think from the book it was to do with Thunderball, and I think from the movies it's slightly more ambiguous as to which film it was from. It might have been You Only Live Twice, and yet he goes into this relationship because he knows that. So when when Tracy's father basically arranges this relationship it's for for his benefit because he wants his daughter to be of a strong man and of course in the 60s that was fine and James Bond sees it as a way of getting what his man will be in a, in a very different way but yeah and and for him it was a business transaction uh, yes. and the fact he was offered a, a million pounds as a dowry was was a bonus that in the end he didn't take but yeah that as when we've talked about meat cutes i mean we've already had the meat cute of her trying to kill herself and then her i mean dad, what an opening that oh, is no. it's incredible i love it it's so oh high drama the the couture the waves his wet shirt while the book is is structured differently at the start of the book um james bond is visiting the grave of vesper lind oh right okay yes so and of course, in the film, that hasn't happened at all at this point. So okay. they've had to start in, in a different way. But there's still a section where Tracy tries to kill herself and um, hired goons, because we, we love a hired goon. Um, I love a hired goon. <laughs> they, um, they come along and, and then it's the, the kind of ultimate fourth wall breaker there, I suppose, for all those people in the cinema in the 60s expecting Sean Connery and it's you know, this Australian car salesman. Yeah. Okay. Well, you t- have to t- because it, um. Yeah. I should. I should say that I, I'm only really familiar with kind of post Pierce Brosnan Bond because mm. those are the films that are in the cinema when I was growing up, and I haven't seen that many of the films sort of you know from this era. For you, how how well does he do with taking over the role from Sean Connery? Um. I I think he he does quite well because. I think the the film allows it to happen. I, I think in the way that because he's opposite a villain like Telly Savalas and, and Diana Rigg, he can get on with his bits. And, and I mean, bear in mind, for a large section of the middle part of the film, he's pretending to be someone else. So he's in character as, as Hilary Bray from the College of Arms and all this. Yes. Um, he's even dubbed for huge amounts of it. Um, right. Okay. By the guy who played Wexford in Inspector Wex- Wexford Mysteries. Okay. Um, wow. And he was the, the the original guy in the film. And so it's strange because he's there being dubbed by someone else, and then he spends most of that time at the top of the the Alp, sort of basically hitting on all these young women up there, using his his wiles and his kilt yes. and his kilt. Yes. Um, yeah, he gets um, he's very busy when he's up there. Yeah, he's such a little fuckboy. <laughs> I mean, I really, I wasn't, I, I, I realised that I'd been kind of um lulled from having watched Daniel Craig ones recently. I'd sort of been lulled into a false sense of security into just how much shagging Bond does in this era. Because yeah, I was quite, I was quite shocked by this one. 
I mean, it, it just goes to show, you know, he can't have been in love with Tracy because he was going off doing this to all these other girls. And obviously, you know, it's part of his, his role, you know, it's his tradecraft to find out information about these these young girls and why they're there in, in this sort of scientific allergy research clinic. I doubt if she'll remember me. Remind her. Then pump her for information. You'll just have to decide how much pumping is needed, James. If only that were true of you and I, Money Penny. It's quite a lot of pressure on. I was thinking, if you're a young man watching a bomb film, because when he's scheduling those young women, like, uh, not, there's my nine o'clock appointment, my <laughs> ten o'clock, eleven. I was thinking, God, that that's quite a lot of pressure on men. If they're watching this, they're going to be thinking, I'm going to need a lot of stamina. Mm, yes. Am I going to? Yeah. That, there's a yeah. lot. Of, there must be a lot of convalescence at some point here. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's that terrible line, isn't it, when he's he's been to bed with one of them and then another one comes in and he says to her, it, it's something like, um, you're a picture yourself, twice as lovely, lovely in the firelight. And then he, he said, then they hug and he says, like, you'd have to be or something like that, you know, sort of implying that he's going to, it's going to be quite difficult for him to go again so soon after. Yeah, but at least he's got his, his last li- date. He's got his lines well researched, though. Is that where, have you ever been backpacking up uh, Lake Hippodama? <laughs> that, the only thing about it is that when you get to a point of the movie where he's asking Tracy to marry him, hmm. I suppose in my head I think, well, I don't really, I don't really kind of understand what marriage is meant to mean in the world of Bond. Um, I think it's a big thing because in again, it's more explored in the book that they had more of a courtship. I've just listened to the Man with the Golden Gun audiobook, and when he's presented with a, an opportunity that might end up in marriage, the, the closing line is very much like he doesn't want to have the same life. He'd, you know, he'd find it very boring. It's not him. It's the, the idea of the one woman being tied down. And I guess, you know, in the 60s, Bond was the ultimate playboy. And to the point when in this film he actually reads or looks at the pictures of a copy of Playboy. And yes. and I think it was one of the books was John F. Kennedy's favourite book and all that. So, um, And you're in a position where that is now a thing. And to kind of to live up to that and have that as a role model must have been quite special for a young man growing up, I suppose. But Yeah, I mean, yeah. how old would you have been when you first saw this Film. Well, first of all, this, um, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, 10, 11, 9, 10, maybe. I, I, the thing is, I, I wouldn't have necessarily got it to the extent that I would now. But I think, you know, you kind of think of the exciting stuff and the love stuff is all very boring. But I think when, you know, you look at the, the more recent Bond films where Daniel Craig's Bond has been in love and betrayed... I mean, in, in the most recent film, they bash you over the head with this one because you've got the bit where he goes to Vesperlin's grave. Um, yes. You've got We Have All the Time in the World playing yeah. several times. And that was the problem with that film. It was such a giveaway that you know at the end of that film, someone's going to die. Don't tell them. I didn't say who. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a Bond film. A lot of people die. And I think... When you go back to this one and and you see that at the time, I think a lot of people found it strange that one, it wasn't Sean Connery and the two, the fact that he did get married and, and they do make references to his wife throughout the series. So in uh, For Your Eyes Only, he visits Tracy's grave yeah. at the start of the film um, and in Licence to Kill, I think there's reference to the fact that he was married once um, and it, it didn't end well. And yeah. th- there's kind of things like that, but but ultimately, I mean, the idea of Bond being married and taken off the market, and I mean, they joke about it, you know, all the 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 things that he has to do, like getting an honest job and that stuff. You know, he can't live off the Queen's income anymore. Shocking, shocking. But um, I, I mean, it is a big culture shock. But then this is, you know, Bond at the peak of his cultural influence, I suppose. Yeah, it made me realise that uh, because 
not having seen this one before, I did actually get a few of the jokes that are made in Austin Powers. <laughs> and it, it kind of, yeah, it made me realise that even though Austin Powers, the first one came out in the 90s, which is now kind of regarded as being quite a hedonistic era where people were being quite, you know, sort of like partying quite hard and being quite free with their sexuality and, and this, that, the other. I remember that there was there is actually a bit, isn't there, in the first Austin Powers film where he's been seeing Liz Hurley's character and then he does go off and have some casual sex with is it with a lot of vagina? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> so this is a film I've studied very seriously. <laughs> and um yeah, and then when he comes back from doing that, he tells her that he's done it and she does I remember, I think there is sort of a scene, isn't there, where she does have a bit of a go at him and kind of go, this isn't the 60s, Austin. You can't just go and do that, you know, and kind of think that it's not going to upset me or whatever, you know. And um, and I thought, yeah, that's actually, it's so interesting because it shows that there there were some of the mores in the the 60s were even kind of more uh, sort of free and easy with how sex was regarded with, um, you know, in, in maybe, maybe particularly from the, point of view of what men could get away with rather than um yeah if you go if you go forward a few decades where it's sort of hopefully a little bit more evenly balanced at least between the sexes in terms of their sexual freedom what do you think i think so i mean that that was one of the lines in austin powers and we'd have to do that at some point but he says about you could live in a consequence-free environment with multiple partners you know that kind of stuff um yeah and this film is is very much a, a a symbol of that whereas in the the recent ones where it is all about love and you know the the fact that even five films later Daniel Craig still hung up on Vespa um yeah and and it becomes a sticking point for his next relationship at that point and and here I mean it goes we go a long way I think it's about 10 years and or less than that until the spy who loved me before Tracy's even mentioned again Wow. I think we go for about four or five films, I think, till we get to The Spy Who Loved Me. And, and she's mentioned in passing, not, not by name, but just the fact that she, she died. Many lady friends, but married only once. Wife killed... All right, in... you've made your point. You're sensitive, Mr. Bond. About certain things, yes. I mean, it would be really controversial now, and I suppose if they did it as a kind of retro throwback, if the next Bond film... Um, the next Bond would go from he'd be stuck in a in a facility where he'd go from room to room having sex with the female occupant inside and then moving on to the next one spouting the same lines and you know hopefully cleaning himself up or something in between but um, sorry Um, but you know it's that would be seen as a really negative influence and I suppose that's how, how times have changed because then after all this and once he's gone through the trauma of getting down the alps i mean it's a lot more i mean it's, it's still portrayed quite well in the film in the, in the book it's really kind of really thriller style type the way he skis down and he's saved by tracy at the, yes. was it the christmas eve skate rink and and she kind of whisks him off as he's at death's door and yeah. christmas film yeah well there we go yeah, which I've only only discovered through you getting me to watch this, which I'm so grateful for because <laughs> I, I really like finding out about interesting Christmas songs. Do you think it's the reason why it would be different now? Is is it because it would be a bad influence in terms of people watching it? Or is it more that now we don't necessarily see the idea of someone kind of hoodwinking a load of women in that way as particularly sexy I mean that's the thing about it I don't know whether it's necessarily I mean like if Daniel Craig did the equivalent of that I think you might just think it's a bit seedy yeah I think that the element of the fact that he's also in character yeah so I mean not that there's elements of abuse of trust perhaps but the fact that he's pretending to be someone else and that's who they're interested in yes Um, exactly exactly oh god there's a, a, a slight stiffness coming on. <laughs> it might be the altitude. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that, that that is fair, I guess, when when you come to his, his trysts upstairs. And when you look at then how he goes about the marriage or the, the 
the relationship with Tracy afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I mean, essentially, she then becomes Blofeld's prisoner. Yeah. And he has to go and rescue her in this kind of, you know, it is like an old fairy tale, fighting the dragon, storming, you know, the top of the castle and that. Like, but um, using his her dad's, you know, just she he just happens to have a few helicopters lying around. It's quite easy if you if your dad's loaded, I suppose. But um, yeah, he's a he's a bit her dad. The stuff that he comes out with about her, you know, she needs a man to dominate her to make love to her. So it's quite quite weird, isn't it? Yes, that's, I suppose yeah. it's a weird way of talking about a child, maybe. This bit, yeah, yeah. But then I guess, you know, when, when we're talking about arranging a marriage, essentially, you know, this was he an Albanian gangster paying off a British spy to marry his daughter. Yeah. Um, but again, as a business transaction, but... Keeps trying to give him money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like an Irish mother when you go around for tea, like, oh, have some, <laughs> go on, go on. <laughs> Take a million, take a million. Um, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. but again, like the like the, it happened one night. You know, at the end of the day, he didn't take the million. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> very much. Or, or well, more like space balls. Let's be honest. But um, <laughs> but I think you, you do have the element there that love conquers all and and all this. But when 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 all is said and done, they have this sort of lavish wedding in the Algarve. Yeah, I mean, some of Diana Rigg hats. We could do a whole episode about that. Oh, we definitely. Oh, yeah. all of her outfits are yeah. imm- immaculate. They're just incredible. She, yeah, that's for the other podcast, isn't it? Yeah. On, <laughs> if we ever do a Patreon. But I think when you're at that point at the end when he actually gets married, and you kind of think, especially now when you come back to you know 25 films in, and you go, oh my God, he actually got married. Um, Did you feel let down when he got married? But you're like, you can't get married. <laughs> James Bond, man, you go on forever. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it was handled pretty well. <laughs> the sense that she immediately got shot. Well, then that's an Austin Powers thing. <laughs> I'm single again. <laughs> no, completely. Yeah. She didn't take half his pension or anything like that. But um, <laughs> I mean, we haven't touched on many stories where one of them dies during the film. Have we? That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, we, we did West Side Story. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's difficult. Like, how do you balance that? Because then the film ends, like, straight away. You know, the, the credits roll while she's then sort of sitting in, in the car. There's no... It's an incredible like, ending. I have to say, the beginning and the end of this film are extraordinary. I think it's an amazing ending. And um, the only thing that I think that they should have done differently is that they have the wonderful... Um, we have all the time in the world refrain going and then it's him saying you know we have all the time that she's just resting and then they have that and then it just and then it finishes and that's unbelievable but then they can't resist going which usually i heartily approve of but on this occasion i was like i don't think i think you should have just stopped you know yeah um yeah i don't know what do you think I think that, that that is the case when you're in a position where you're not expecting it to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it must be weird seeing, you know, again, you've only just seen it for the first time. Yeah. And I was having to be so careful not to say anything about the ending or anything like that. I mean, it was... Yeah, well, I've seen No Time to Die. Well, I saw yeah. that before seeing this one, yeah. which is so the wrong way around <laughs> doing anything. Um, and, the, and so at the end of this one, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, I had so many moments. Like, I mean, this one, I thought, yes, I really should have seen this one first. No, but then to be honest, I think, you know, when, when I saw No Time to Die the first time and, you know, 10 minutes in, they start playing You Have All the Time, We Have All the Time in the World. And you kind of think, Okay, what's going to happen here? I see. Okay, so actually, it might have worked in terms of the anticipation of what was going to happen. It might have worked in my favour, perhaps. Possibly, yeah. yeah. I think. Um, but then, when you come and watch this one um, for the first time, and you know, there's all these things. You know, I mean, bear in mind, it's the the film's what two hours twenty odd. Yeah. And you know the ma- the wedding is at the end, and the, you kind of think when they in a lot of films where people get married, it's kind of a happy ending. And then, oh no, 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 just give it a couple more minutes. A couple more minutes. Yeah. And it's awful because she says, you've given me a wedding present, a future. Mm. But then he tells her to shut up. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, God, it's sad just thinking about it. Pre-Daniel Craig, hmm. is this the darkest Bond film? I wouldn't say in terms of tone. Okay. I think um, people look at maybe some of the, the, the Timothy Dalton ones, for example. Um, but then I think that was more the way he portrayed the character rather nice. than and, and rather than the, the tone of the film as such. But I think, um, I mean, this one to end on such a, a downer. I mean, that's so bold. But here, I mean, you've got Bond, and this is where Lazenby is quite good, in that it's hard to imagine Sean Connery being that vulnerable when he's being, I wouldn't say tortured, but, you know, he, he's being put for the mill, literally. And when kind of Blofeld, in the scenes where Blofeld has got, clearly thinks he's got the better of him. And it's hard to think, like, Sean Connery, he just kind of has that air of, I'm going to get out of this. I'm totally yes. going to get out of this. You know, yes. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, and, and this way round, it's kind of like, oh, God, you know, how is he? And there is that little bit more doubt. And I suppose that's the thing around the changing of actors in general and, and throughout the series, you know, all the actors have brought something different and th- there's often a lot of discourse on, on Twitter, mainly around if a different act, you know, say if you took one actor and put say Pierce Brosnan in a different film or Roger Moore in a different film, would it be as good or as bad or would it just be pure different? But with this one, because you know, then in, in hindsight and in, in posterity that this was Lazenby's only Bond film. Yeah. It kind of sits in its own little shelf then because then Sean Connery comes back and does another one and the way that that one starts is um, so it's Diamonds Are Forever and the opening scene of that is him chasing Blofeld yes but it's nothing to do with Tracy because they're basically ignoring this film oh I see okay <laughs> so it's weird. again you've kind of got to suspend disbelief and, and you know in the way that now Marvel films hi Tim Marvel films are so constructed <laughs> everything fits together so perfectly every bit of every timeline yeah. is put there deliberately for one reason or another whereas yes. at this era of bond films no one cared my name is bond james bond is there something i can do for you yes a matter of fact there is there is something i'd like you to get off your chest Where is Ernst Stavro Blofeld? Speak up, darling, I can't hear you. James is quite um, violent in this film, isn't he? Like she, she, gets a, she gets quite a hard time from everyone. She gets smacked and mm. so on and so forth. Is James, do you think that that's quite an accurate reflection of what James Bond is meant to be like in the books? Yes. And that's why it's there. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's part of the character and the way uh, I mean without being too much like I know this kind of stuff I guess like you know he is one of the ultimate alpha males that's what he does to everyone perhaps Tracy's dad was right you know she needs a man to control her and yes and all that I mean Bond is rough with her the dad slaps her one of the hired goons gives her a good beating yeah it's oh god she has a horrible time then she, she, gets, then she got shot time. in the head. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, it's quite... It, the thing that's interesting about it is that when it's being silly, this film, it's as silly as, you know, as as we say, Austin Powers or something, you know, the, the double entendres and, mm. and all of that. And But then it's kind of mixed, isn't it, with this other, other feeling to it? Because I, I think ultimately it's really quite a sad film and we've got all the time in the world I've always found just a ridiculously I don't know like that song is so filled with pathos and it's got you know this this vocal delivery by Louis Armstrong and he recorded it when he was at the end of his life when he was already quite ill I think he was too ill to play his trumpet so they got someone else to play the trumpet and that all just comes through in that recording I mean I think that it's got the fact that it's got this song in it this movie gives it a real kind of emotional depth that um i think they're very i mean a lot of the bond films are so lucky with the with the music they're able to use in them so it kind of mingles i i maybe my experience of watching it i think bond films really can really keep you on your toes because one minute you're 
you're kind of enjoying a sequence that could almost be in a carry-on film. <laughs> and the next minute you're kind of like, you know, blinking back tears because you're like, oh my God, you know, it's devastating. You know, you, is that kind of part of their appeal, do you think? I think so. I think that's part of the broader appeal. And I think yeah. that's why they struggle now is because a lot of people have grown up watching Bond films do that, exactly that. Um, yeah. You know, and this was incredibly brave in the in the way that they they challenged his concept of relationships for example and when the problem is is that nowadays people compare bond films to jason bourne mission impossible that kind of stuff but bond is a different character and, yeah. and now in in the recent times they've tried to make bond a more serious almost monogamous person yeah and it hasn't been quite as popular with some of the people who grew up watching these ones um, yes and i do wonder that you know, this film would have been perfect for Daniel Craig. Yeah. It would have been perfect if they'd done it now. But I think, you know, when you balance that up and there are the silly jokes, you know, he goes from molesting these young girls who are basically being treated, and let's not pretend they're not being mistreated by Blofeld either. Oh, completely, completely. Um, they're being used for biological warfare. And totally. um, you should never disrespect Joanna Lumley. Oh, not at all, not no. at all. And you know, if people are allergic to potatoes, you know, they, they should get all the help they need. But absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, that would be an interesting plot point now if they try that. You know, someone being they'd be gluten intolerant and they, they couldn't have dairy, yes. something like that. <laughs> yes, you have to go into Nero's and find a gluten free croissant, yeah, um, <laughs> or something that's vegan. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and again, you know, try, trying to balance that. And this is the thing with Bond films is some of them have aged in many ways very badly and some of them have aged spectacularly well. Yes. Uh, and other than some of the misogyny and the treatment of women, this one has generally aged quite well, other than that very big bit that hasn't. But um, but the relationship bit is absolutely fantastic and, and, and the way that they, you know, that they appear to have chemistry. And I think... While there were, I think, some rumours that Lazenby was quite keen on Diana Rigg throughout the making of the film. Oh, um, he wouldn't be. Well, of course. But um, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm not sure if he ever got that far. But oh, really? Oh, I'm okay. sure she, she was a strong enough character, a strong enough person to kind of <laughs> not go, oh, Jay, oh, oh Lazenby. Oh. <laughs> You and your slightly painted on hair. <laughs> yes. yes, it's an interesting look. Yeah. It is an interesting look, isn't it? It's, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure who to compare him to. No, he's, he's, quite, a, he's quite a sort of fascinating choice for Bond, you know, knowing that he hadn't had acting experience and then his delivery is, is interesting. I mean, even that, like that, that the opening is so incredible and then... But then when he introduced himself, he said, hello, my name's Bond, James Bond. And I was thinking something very, very sort of jaunty about a lot of this. He had a lot of guts, kind of thing, yeah. Um, but then I can think that's not necessarily him. That's kind of more the, the, more the, the genre of film that we're talking about, isn't it? And just... Um, yeah, yeah. I, I guess he he wasn't able to make it his own in the way that, say, Roger Moore was. But then Roger Moore had seven goes at it. Yeah, yeah call me James. Um, we'll have to do a Roger Moore one because oh, I haven't yes, seen a Roger Moore one. So oh my God, I know. Oh, where to start? Where to start? <laughs> when we come here and we're looking at some of the stuff, I mean, the scene in in the barn, for example. You know, they're talking about keeping it pure and that lasts about four minutes as well <laughs> well they've already had their lovely night on the terrace in the uh, by the way yeah the double bed on the terrace i'm i'm obsessed with that what an amazing hotel that'll be yeah we talk yeah. about hotels a lot but um yeah i'm not gonna say it and we imagine you kind of walk in and even now you know 53 years later you kind of look at that and go wow I mean, yes the decor is awful in comparison mm. but you kind of think wow what a setup i know a double bed on a balcony whereas normally you know most people's experience will be when they go on a package holiday and they've had a few too many drinks and they fall asleep on a lilo on the balcony of their apartment in magaluf or something like that i know and he and 
Yeah, and that whole dialogue between them. Why do you persist in rescuing me, Mr. Bond? And he said, please stay alive, at least for tonight. And then she goes upstairs and says something like, oh, I hope you'll be worth it or something. And then he sends he sends caviar for two ups. And I was like, yeah, you see, that's what that's what you want. If you're going to be, if you're going to see you upstairs, you want someone to send some caviar up. And not, be. and not just raid the minibar for a sort of like four pound Kit Kat or something like exactly. that. Exactly. I think we've lost the art of romance and the art of romance is caviar. <laughs> God, talk about high standards. I know, I know. I'm... Look, okay, fine, two Kit Kats. <laughs> Are we talking chunky or fingers? <laughs> this never happened to the other fella. Uh, do you prefer On Her Majesty's Secret Service to No Time to Die, or is that too much of a painful question? Um, I, I think... <sighs> with No Time to Die, and I, I said it when I was on... The uh, Fundables podcast. Yes, I heard you. What a great program that was. Yeah, I mean Marty and and the guys done done a great job there, and yeah. um, and we talked about No Time to Die, and and again, we'd seen it, um, and I was on with with Robbie and Alice, and and we talked about the film, and and I think we'd all seen it quite recently, and I think there was a bit of a recency bias there, where we were still kind of taking it in. A little bit. And I think because of the way the film was, with the ending and some of the choices they made, um, it was, we're still kind of processing it. But one of the things I said at the time, and I'll stick stick by that, was that what they tried to do in No Time to Die, and it was heavily aping this film, and probably You Only Live Twice as well for the whole villain's lair, which was a good bit... Um, was that they try to make those big scenes, those big decisions that they made here. I just don't think it worked particularly well in that. And I don't know if, if I can't put my finger on it. Was it the acting? Was it the the way it was made? I don't know. Maybe there's an element of nostalgia here uh, as well. Yeah. Because, you know, I guess in Casino Royale, Vespa dies at the end. You know, the woman he loves yes. died. And... Yes, that happened in the book as well. And it's difficult to kind of think, you know, maybe that's a more healthy comparison because the woman he loved died at the end, albeit albeit under different circumstances. You know, this one, she died in love with him. The other one, she died, but she had the secret boyfriend and and all that and was working for the other side in in some regards. So I don't don't know. But um, I, I think there is an element of nostalgia here, but I think what they did the the big decisions the big scenes they generally worked in this one and the fact that you've got a bond who yes he's inferior to pretty much every other bond in some way or other but he he works in this film he wouldn't have worked in most of the others i think he'd have been been quite dreadful in some of the others but because of the supporting cast because of the way it was made I think it worked. Um, I mean, having you've seen most of the recent ones anyway, and now this. Mm. Um, what, what's your kind of take on on the way that's those comparisons lie? I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's not as good an actor as Daniel Craig. Hmm. Would that be fair? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not an actor. Let's be fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that. I'm always kind of torn with these things because I'm a huge fan of comedy films. Like, you know, like mm. no one likes a Mel Brooks film more than I do. And um, so it's not in any way that I'm anti the idea of silliness in general. I mean, as you will have picked up on. <laughs> um, but I think that if you're going to have a movie that you're going to you're going to tell a dramatic story and a love story and have a certain amount of you know s- stakes it's quite it's quite good if you have a little bit more sort of tonal consistency and i suppose when we did casino royale i liked you know there are jokes in that it's not you know it's not a deadly serious film but i did quite i quite like the way they seem to be taking his feelings for Vesper sort of seriously and you know they didn't they didn't kind of um once they'd met they didn't kind of dampen down that connection by kind of having him going and 
bedding a load of other people <laughs> in the way that they do in this one. And I kind of appreciated that. And I think that, uh, you know, it meant that my that my emotions were captured maybe a little bit more as a consequence when we were watching Casino Royale, if mm. you see what I mean, in comparison to this one, where I do get completely... There's good chemistry between them. I think that Tracy is fantastic and um, Diana Riggs' performance is so good. But because they kind of go there's this middle section of the film where it kind of, you know, becomes very silly indeed. And also he's sort of behaving kind of awfully. It It's slightly just, you know, I don't know, water, waters down their connection a bit for me. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can go with that. I, I can see that completely. And I think that the fact that in a lot of films, not Bond film, but any film, there is a kind of linear way that a relationship is shown or portrayed yeah. Whereas here it kind of jumps around a little bit. Yes, exactly, yeah. But um, I suppose he's kind of literally sowing his wild oats during the film. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, justice for Money Penny. This is the problem in that <laughs> Money Penny in this iteration of Bond, and we're talking through most of them up till the mid 80s, it's almost like her role is to be this kind of token. You know that there is that flirting that still goes on, yeah. And it's and and it's still the same actress who plays her throughout up until the mid eighties. Oh right, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so she doesn't change until the mid eighties, and yeah. and it becomes you know it's never going to happen, and the the relationship becomes more platonic with the odd sort of exception here and there. Like it's not quite brotherly brother sister kind of stuff, but it's. I think I think you know her crying at the end <laughs> and even yeah. even Q giving her a little sort of arm around the shoulder that kind of thing and I mean it's nice that Q's giving Bond relationship advice when it's normally <laughs> get advice around gadgets and bring her back in one piece which he doesn't with Tracy. Yes, they did a bad job of that. Yes. Um Yeah, yeah. and he says money penny what would I do without you? And she says, my problem is that you never do anything with me. The books that I've read and, and listened to, they kind of talk about her and the litany of civil service secretaries of the era. That that was basically the job description was to be kind of like a wife to the guys, but without yes. any of that kind of stuff. You know, wife without romance. Yes, well, it makes it makes kind of more sense, doesn't it, of something like Mad Men? Because I think that through through um, the relationship between Don and Peggy, they kind of subverted that a bit, didn't they? They kind of, um, they sort of showed what the sort of initial expectations are, very basic ones for someone in Peggy's role. And then she kind of breaks three of the cliches, doesn't she? Kind of thing. Don, I mean, this would have been peak Mad Men era throughout yes. the 60s. The, the way that the, the whole pool of secretaries are basically there to facilitate the men um, and, and yeah, and he not, turns up and grabs her ass, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's not even necessarily just talk about facilitating a off boy, but it's <laughs> that that is captured here, and or you know, vice versa, uh, and and that's something that the kind of long running flirting, will they won't they? Of course they won't. Of Bond and Money Penny, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. Just do all the admin with none of the caviar. <laughs> he like, br- he yeah. brings her gifts occasionally. What does he bring her? Roses, things that he's found on missions. <laughs> God knows what they'd be. Hope he gave them a wipe first. Well, speaking of which, I don't know, you must have then seen, if you talked about the Brosnan ones, um, which one was it? The World Is Not Enough. And been away and brought her a cigar. Everyone would have known at that point about the Monica Lewinsky situation. Oh, I see, yes. And she said something like, I know just where to put that. And then chucked it in the bin. Oh right, oh, okay. So, okay. so um, I, I dropped my pen as you were telling me. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. I mean, like you say, ju- justice for Money Penny. You do wonder if if there's even a Mister Money Penny. There but, probably isn't, is there? Is, isn't mm. is she meant to be? Is she meant to be, as they say, a spinster? I I think so. And then that's kind of where the shock came in one of the recent Bond films when the the current Money Penny 
I think Bond calls her in the middle of the night and she answers and there's a guy in her in her apartment. Yeah. And Bond actually says, "Have you are you with someone?" in an almost accusatory way. Yeah. Like you're there to fawn over me. What's yes. Going on? So uh yes, that's a You guys. We're terrible, aren't we? Really are terrible. <laughs> Sorry. Speak, speaking for my people. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm glad that they had that twist. That's good. You know, she she deserves to have a little fun. Yes, but uh, yeah, the the end of end of this film is. Um, I mean, if you saw it, if you're watching it for the first time, you don't know what's coming. How was that when you get to a wedding at the end of a film? Did you see the ending, the the, the death coming? Well, there'd been there'd been a few things like like her saying, you know, that the line where he where he says to her please stay alive at least for tonight earlier on and then her talking about how he's given her a future and yeah as you say the fact that you've been watching the film by that point for about two hours and on the other hand though they they seem so so kind of happy and it all seemed that it feels it feels you know you know that you know that something's afoot but on the other hand the idea that they could just, in the last couple of minutes of the movie, have her die like that is an incredible sort of surprise and not something that you're expecting. So Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the great movie twists. Yeah, it's just really... I mean, did you, do you remember... Because if you saw this when you were nine or ten, that must have been quite a shocking ending for a Bond film for a kid to see. Yeah, but I, I think... At that age, you may not fully appreciate the kind of heft of it or the weight yeah. of it. And, you know, there's another one around the corner. I see, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Whether it's a Bond film or a Bond woman or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think now, it, you know, watching it now, it, it, it hits harder because you're older and because yeah. you, you you might put yourself in that position or whatever. And the fact that... You know when, when the, the copper turns up at the end, um, when she's lying there, oh, it's okay. She's only sleeping. Mm, um, yeah. And then the policeman probably just goes, "Oh, okay." Then and carries on driving, ignores the bullet holes. It's difficult because you know that that actually feels quite genuine, and that was something that I think you know, Lazenby for his many faults did pretty damn well. It's really quite powerful, isn't it, as a as a kind of closing closing shot because um, there's been other scenes in it, hasn't there? You know, someone will get killed and their guts will be sprayed all over the mountain and it'll kind of be passed off as a joke. There's a lot of kind of death and um, it being taken kind of quite lightly. So that I think that's the thing. It is it is sometimes quite good in in a Bond movie to show the show the sort of gravity of that kind of feeling of mortality a bit so that um yeah it does i suppose you could sort of say then it doesn't it doesn't um make the idea of killing too frivolous then does it if you kind of show an instance where something is really quite moving as a result of someone having been killed yeah because i mean those those girls in the the facility they're basically being brainwashed into killing off agriculture the whole of the uk's agriculture i think in the film it's, it's more widespread but you know, the book was done not long after World War Two. The whole thing about sending girls as disposable things to go off and basically devastate a country. Yeah. Um, and again, like you say, you know, there's there's scenes that are quite. I mean, obviously, there's the the hired goons who die, you know, nameless goons, um, and it's like there's one who's ch- when they're skiing and they're, they're being chased, and he just ends up in like a the ice machine and just the, the snow turns red and it's oh, oh, oh yes yeah yeah completely yeah so and and it's i mean it's just, i suppose it's one of those things that they again they parodied in austin powers when it's like no one cares about the family of the henchmen <laughs> yeah, no, um but but then the, the woman in that she was a bond girl um the one who took that phone call she was the roger moore's love interest in, Moon, oh, really? in moonraker amazing what yeah. a great doctor, connection dr goodhead um, <laughs> yes, that was her name. Can I help you? Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. I am looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. I mean, I think it, it's 
probably also down to how good Diana Rigg is in it that it feels sort of like such an arresting moment because I think that you you know she's so enjoyable to watch in it and um she's a match for Bond in the sense that not only does she have a you know strong force of will she also is a fighter she you know manages to hold her own in all those fight scenes so incredibly well Mm. so there's something about the idea of them being paired up together where you think oh well that you know that could hold quite a lot of adventures and maybe we'll be part of that as an audience and so there's something very it's so abrupt isn't it her demise and that, and that you kind of think oh god we're never going to see her again and that's that's really upsetting yeah but then yeah. we were also robbed of further scenes with her and Telly Savalas um, yes and that's true <laughs> the two of them together which is fantastic yeah. <laughs> every step of the way Well, as we zoom away in our Aston Martin, scattering flowers all the way, we leave you with the thought that all you need time for is love. Nothing more, nothing less. Only love. And perhaps a martini. I've been Rich. I've been Kat. And this has been Don't You Want Me. We have all the time in the world Just for love Nothing more Nothing less Only love